you would take your Bibles and, and make your way to the book of Ruth, if you might have a hard time finding that, it's towards the beginning of the Bible, uh, before you get to First and Second Samuel and the Chronicles and First and Second Kings and so forth. The, the book of Ruth, the story of this young woman is, is not a deep work of theological reasoning like we would find in the book of Romans, but it is full of theology. It's not, a, it's not a symphony of the work of Christ so well explained and, and illustrated as we would find in the Gospels, but yet the story ultimately points to him. It's not, it's not a story or a vivid, you know, vivid imagery that describes the end times and, and what God is doing in that, but but yet it still traces the details of God's working in events of history. It's not a, you know, a great kingdom life summary like we would find in, in the Sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, but yet still in this story, we find some really practical and applicable kingdom life principles and lessons. This book is a story of, of really just three people, of, of two widows and a man. We have three characters, of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And it's, it's the short story, it's the small story of, of the happenings of their life, the ups and downs, the ebbs and flow, the ordinary things that, that they go through, through their journey and through their life. But yet in the midst of all of that, these ordinary things and this, this story that's just so simple, we see an extraordinary God working just as magnificently as he does anywhere. Here in the quiet and most unlikely places. You know, sometimes we look for God in the big and the dramatic and the loud we look for significant things from him to, to come in the, 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 the crashing and clapping of lightning. We, big events, mountains moved, waters parted. But sometimes the most significant things that God does are in the quiet, plain, ordinary spaces of life. This story shows us how an extraordinary how an extraordinary God can do significant and extraordinary things through ordinary things, through our ordinary life. The story finds this, we, we, we meet in, in verse one of chapter one and this statement is, is made. There was a certain, I'm sorry, that's the wrong book. <laughs> chapter one of Ruth says this, and in those days when the judges ruled, you know, life is a cycle of um, going and returning. I mean, all, all day long, all week long, all month long, all year long, all life long, our lives are one of going and returning. It really began when you were a little kid and you had every day to go to school and sometime around three, four o'clock you returned home. And you began that cycle five days a week, going and returning, going and returning. And then as we get to be adults, that going and returning becomes very significant because if we don't go, we got nothing to return to. 
And so every day we get in the car and we, we travel to work and we work and then sometime later in the day or, or late in the night we return home and we go through that cycle every day going and returning and going and returning. Some of your going every day takes a long time and some of your returning every day takes a long time in that. But going and returning is a part of life. It's a part of my everyday life. It's been a part of my journey in life. And we go on vacation, but yet we return home. We go shopping and we return home. We, we, we go on a business trip and we return home. Going and coming, we all do it. It's part of life. It's, it's what we do. Sometimes the going and the returning, and the rhythm of life is difficult. In fact, sometimes it's painful. It can be hard. It can be forced. The return can be delayed or it doesn't happen easy. And in some cases, it doesn't happen at all. Going and returning, while it's a normal routine of life, it can change a person at moments. It can, can affect us heavily. The first chapter of Ruth is like that. It's the story that begins with a going and a returning that's really painful and really hard for these people. As we, as we read in verse 1, in the days of the judges, that right there would set it off. If you understand what was taking place in the setting of what that means right there. The book before this describes numerous years where the nation of Israel was in absolute chaos. They were in this going and returning cycle themselves. They would, they would follow God. They would do the right thing. They would stay close to him. And then they would flee. They would move away. They would back off. They would drift. They would, they would go away from God. And as a result, things would get very difficult, very hard. Oftentimes a nation would come in and would sack them and things would be very difficult. And God would rise up a judge by his grace who would, who would bring the nation back. They would return to him. But it wouldn't be too long before that cycle began again. And it's over and over and over. And it is a mess for these people. It's social and it's religious chaos for these people. Follow, leave, defeat, follow, leave, repeat. In fact, there's a statement made in the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's what's happening when we come onto the scene here in Ruth. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And we see a family. We are honed in and we circled in and drawn very close to a family who, who did the, the same thing. In the midst of that going away season, it tells us that there was a famine in the land. Things got very tough. Likely this famine was because of the judgment of God. God was dealing with his people. And when he dealt with the nation, it, 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 it affected people individually. And so we hone in closer and it tells us in verse 1, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judea was, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. The name of their two sons were Malon and Shelon. One thing that happens when there's a famine is that there's a scarcity of food. We don't know how long this famine had been, but we see how it had affected this family. They were hungry. You know, we don't, we don't understand that necessarily. We, we don't know what that feels like to be in the culture that we're in to go hungry. Not, I mean, maybe you didn't eat breakfast this morning and you're a little hungry. 
You know, maybe you've had to skip a meal or skip a couple meals. Maybe you, you know a small taste of what that looks like, but, but, but this was no end in sight. This was a regular cycle. This was a regular thing in these people's lives. They were hungry. They didn't know where food would come from. Would we have food this week? Would we have food tomorrow? And Elimelech, I don't know whether he was tired or whether he was worried or whether he was scared, constantly looking in the eyes of his sons, saying, Daddy, I'm hungry. Are we going to eat? What about tomorrow? We haven't eaten in a couple of days. Whatever the case was, Elimelech decided to do what was right in his own eyes, and it tells us that he got up and he, he went with his family away. He made the decision to leave his homeland and venture out. And as we read verse 2, it's almost predictable what would happen next, just because of the names that are mentioned here. His two sons were Malon and Shelon, which means sickly and pining. It tells us that they leave the land of Bethlehem. They were in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was known as the house of bread. That's what the word, the name actually means, house of bread. They leave the house of bread. Even though at the moment in the time, the house of bread was empty. They leave the house of bread and they venture off into the land of Moab where the Moabites were. If you know much about those people, they weren't great people. They weren't people that served God. They were pagans. They did all sorts of crazy things. They were enemies of Israel. They, these people left the homeland. They went off basically to the enemies. They, they left the land. And as we look at the Old Testament, as we understand, the land was significant. God gave that land to these people. And God's promise was, I'll, I'll provide for you through the land. And so what Elimelech and his family are doing is they're leaving the provision of God because they're questioning the provision of God. And they're going to people that don't follow God, the Moabites. You look in Deuteronomy 23 and Numbers 21, and you hear a little bit about how wicked these people were. But what's a dad going to do? Elimelech had a responsibility to his children and to his wife. Yeah, I'm sure that there were many that probably questioned his his decision. There might have been family members that said, Elimelech, you, you don't need to do this, man. Just hang on. Hang on. I, yeah, Elimelech probably should have gotten on his knees and prayed and begged God to do something about this and, and God to provide. And he should have trusted him through that moment. But, but he, he did something. He did what was right in his eyes. He did what he thought he needed to do for the sake of his family. You know, we all go through famine in life. We go through seasons of crisis. We don't understand why we're where we're at and what's going on. We don't understand why. We didn't pick this. We didn't choose this. This was not what we planned. And all of a sudden, things are difficult. Things are hard. Things are painful. Things are hurt. We're hearing things. And it may not be, I'm hungry, but we hear things. And we feel things. And we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And we don't see how things are going to get better. We find ourselves, before we begin to judge Elimelech, we need to understand, we've been there too. I've been there too. Or I don't know what to do or how to get out of this situation or what the provision will be. But I've got to do something. You know, those times sometimes come 
not when our faith is strong and can stand the crisis, but they come sometimes when our faith is weak and it can't stand the crisis. And just like this family, rather than press in and trust, we flee to fix. You have fled to fix and I have fled to fix. Rather than to press in and trust. But as we read on, it didn't, it didn't go as, as planned. Elimelech ventured out, went to where there was food. And in verse 3, we pick up, and Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. His protection that he sought for his wife and family did not work out. What he hoped would help them was shot down with his death. And now in a male-dominated society, he has left his wife far from her family, far from home with his two sons that he was responsible for. He, he died. It did not go as planned. He did not fix the problem. In verse 4, kind of, hints us that there might be some hope. He says this, so these, these the, the sons, took Moabite wives. And the one was named Orpah, and the, the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And so for a moment, for, for maybe a season, it, it felt like, okay, so, so yeah, that didn't work out really well. I mean, he died and he left a widow. But, but there is hope for this woman, Naomi, because her sons are of marrying age. And they, they find wives and they get married. And so all of a sudden we think, well, maybe, maybe this is a, a story of, 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 of a unique family unit. How they moved off and in a new land and these, these boys made roots and they took care of their mom. And, and you can imagine and begin to dream of, of Naomi being that grandmother that, that gets to raise her grandkids. And maybe the next few verses will say there's little steps walking around and, and they build a family there and, and everyone lives happily ever after. But that's not what happens. They lived there for about 10 years. In verse 5, it says, And both Malon and Shelon died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I mean, it has just gone from bad to worse. They started out hungry and a famine. They, they leave. Her husband dies. And it says that she is left with her two sons. And here in verse 5, we, say, we see that she was left without her two sons. This paints a picture of absolute despair. In a male-dominated society, what is going to happen to Naomi? Miles and miles from home, by herself. Who knows what's going through her head? She's an alien. She's, she's in a foreign land. She's alone. She's been robbed of her loved ones. Certainly we see throughout the story that there's a bitterness that begins to sink into her that takes hold of her, and why not? Nothing has gone right. This is a human, and this human is hurting, and that hurting hurts because that's what hurt does. What is also scary with this that would have been very significant to the Jews that heard this story and would have been aware of what happened in Naomi's life is that a family unit which was a big deal, a bloodline 
is about to go extinct because there are no males that carry this on, just, just several now widows. So we see a going away and, and we see a bereavement. We see things not going well. But in verse 6, everything changes and we see this, this cycle, this coming back. Verse 6 is a point where everything changes. Notice verse 6. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return to the country from the country of Moab. For she had heard that the fields of Moab, from the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Here in this verse, in, in verse 6, we see that, that Naomi makes the decision and she has her, her daughters-in-law with her. And she makes the decision to return. That's the first time we see this word return. But here in the rest of the chapter, we see this word ten times. It's a significant word. It's the Hebrew word shut. And we see it in several different uh, ways that it's translated here. In verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 10, in verse 12, 15, 16, 21, and 22. She returns. She makes the decision to leave where she's at and to go back to where she came from. And why? What was it? That clicked. What was it that moved in her head and in her heart to make her come to that place and point, to lift her up for a moment out of the despair and out of the depression and darkness, to take a step forward, to go back to return? What was it? Notice what it was. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She hears good news. And it was the good news she heard that leads her to return. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. We don't, we don't necessarily see that as significant as she would. Because we don't lack for food. And I think sometimes because we live in such comfort and such plenty and abundance and there is food everywhere and we, we, we don't really understand and know what it means to go without food, that we forget the provision of food. Just to make note, I think it's important that we just recognize for just a moment as we come across this that, that God provides for us. God provided food for his people, and God provides food for us. He is the provider. And it doesn't feel like that in society. No, 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 no. Harris Teeter's the provider. My, my, my paycheck is the provider. My job is the provider. I mean, we have the abundance of food everywhere. I mean, you know, if your pantry's going low, no worries, because you can just go down the corner, and there is a whole building full of all the food you could ever want and the foods that you really don't want. It's there in abundance, stocked forward. They even have like certain methods of stocking to make it appealing to you. And you can put it in a card. You can walk down the card. You can, you can do it. There's even coupons you can take. There's all sorts of things you can do. We have an abundance of food. And if that doesn't work for you, if you don't have time for that sort of provision for your life, if you don't want to sit down and make a list and go to the store and say hi to people and stand in line and so forth, hey, no worries. Because all over our town, all over our city, we have these little buildings 
And if you don't want to cook a meal, they'll do it for you. You can go in, you can sit down, you can look at a small menu, and you can say, that's what I want to eat. And somebody in the back will prepare it and give it to you. And if that's too time-consuming for you, you don't even have to get out of your car. For $5.99, you can get a number one. Or you can supersize it for $7.99 with a little extra sauce. We, we've, we've lost a sense that every time there is food on your plate, every time your fork comes to your mouth, that is provided by God. Maybe it would be a good practice the next time you go to the grocery store as you're walking through, as you pick up that can of green beans and say, Lord, I, I thank you for these green beans. I don't really want them. But you're the one that provided the rain and the seed to make it grow. Lord, I thank you for these chicken quarters. Thank you for this box of Special K. It really makes my morning wonderful. Lord, I, I thank you for these Oreos. I know they're not good for me. But you're so kind to create things that taste good and appease my palate. Lord, I thank you for this double quarter pounder with cheese. No onions, no pickles, a little extra mustard and extra fries. Lord, I thank you for Chick-fil-A sauce. It sounds silly, but, but listen, we need to return to understanding that what we have, God provides. Even in the simple things. Because ultimately it is God that stocks the shelves and provides for us. Naomi realizes that. And so in verse 7, they set out. She set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws with them. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, this would have been a common thing. From this point, we don't really know a whole lot. It seems like they're going with her. But it would have been common in those days, very different than our culture and society, is that when a person left and a person was going on a journey, those with that person, family, friends, would travel some of the way with them. They wouldn't just stand at the back front door and, and wave. They wouldn't just stand at the, driving, at the driveway and just wave goodbye or, or stand on the front porch. They, they would go some of the way with them. They would get to the edge of town maybe. They, were, they would get to the uh, kind of the area where, you know, it's, if we need to turn back because it's going to be dark by the time we get home. And so these ladies likely were doing that. It was very common that they were, they were going with them. They didn't just slam the door. They, they walked with her. And Naomi, unsure of what's, going on? Like, are they going to stay? Are they going to walk? How far are they going to come with me? She says to him, this was Naomi's decision. She says to him in verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And, and the Lord grant that you may each find rest, each of you in your household and of her husband. Go back. Thanks for coming with me. You've been so sweet. You've been so kind, but, but you don't have to go any further. Go, go ahead and go home. home. Get, ladies, get remarried. Have a future. Don't, don't come any further with me. I, I, I know the way back. I can handle it from here. You've been sweet. And so it tells us in verse 9 that 
They did what women do in emotional moments like that. They, she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. That's what women do. They hug and they cry. And that's what they did here. It's a sweet moment, a moment of, of love and of care. And, and they argue with her. They give her a little pushback. They say, no, 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 no. We will return with you to your people. We'll, we'll come with you, Naomi. Maybe they were thinking that Naomi was just saying this out of, out of pity. No, 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 Naomi. We will. If you, you want us to go, we'll go with you. We're, we're willing. We're ready. We're, we're, we're coming. And Naomi gets a little bit more firm with them here. In verse 12, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons for you, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you not therefore refrain from marrying? So she's saying, ladies, let's just think about this reasonably. I cannot give you husbands. Like, I have no hope. I'm not married. But even if I was married, and tonight I were to get pregnant, I'm going to wait nine months, and then you're going to have to wait like dozens of years before you can marry the boys that I would give you. Are you really going to wait that long? There's, there's no hope here. There's, there's no future for you. There's nothing in me. There, there's no life for you with me. Go back. And, and then she tells us, how she really feels, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. There's something deeper to this, girls. This is not just the way life is. This is not just happenstance. No, God allowed this to take place. And I am bitter. What has happened in my life is by the hand of God. Even in her bitterness, even in her difficulty, even in her loss, Naomi does understand the sovereignty of God, that all things that take place in our lives come through the desk of God first. And so what she's dealt, what she's facing, is not something she can undo. She is facing something that God has allowed to happen. And so they weep again, says verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and then the two women made decisions. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. Orpah listened to what Naomi said. She reasoned with it, and she concluded that Naomi is right. And so she returned home. Ruth listened to Naomi. She reasoned with it, and she concluded that she was right. And she stayed. And so Ruth continues to journey, and Naomi continues on. She said, listen, see, verse 15, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth, it's not too late. Hey, hey, it's really sweet what you've done. It's really kind what you're doing for me. But it's not too late to go back. It's not too late to return. I won't think anything less of it. You've gone this far. You've gone farther than Orpah. Go back. But Ruth is resistant. She is, she is resolved. 
In verse 16, she says, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. Stop, Naomi. I've made my choice. I've made up my mind. I, I do not stop. Just quit refusing what I'm doing here. I've decided what I'm going to do. And then we have, in the next few lines, one of the most beautiful commitments in all of the Bible. Just an incredible commitment, a declaration from Ruth to Naomi. Look at it if you would. In fact, in fact it's, it's so good. I think one of the best translations of this is actually in the, the old King James. It's so beautiful how they translate this verse. Listen to it in verse 16. And, and Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, I, I will die and, and there I'll be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Incredible commitment. But in that commitment, we see the reason for the commitment. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. It's not just a commitment to care for Naomi. It goes way, way, way beyond that. Something over the season and over the life of Ruth in her time with Naomi had clicked for her. I don't know if it was the influence of her faith or whatnot, but Ruth had made a decision to leave her people and her gods, to leave this false understanding, this, this non-truth, this ridiculous thing that was going to lead her nowhere, this empty hope of nothing, because in Naomi, she had found God's people and the one true God. And she's declared right here, I am leaving my past. I am leaving the false things. And I am surrendering to the truth. I am surrendering to the one true God. I am leaving that. And, and while you return to him, I'm going with you to him as well. We see here in Ruth is, is a woman who's changed her life and committed it to him. Which is ultimately what leads her to the commitment she makes to Naomi. Her people and her God. And as you fast forward through the pages of Scripture, thousands of years, to the cross of Jesus Christ and the valley of decision, that is the same commitment that Jesus calls for 
from us. To leave our past and to leave our sin and to leave whatever we've believed to be truth before and to depart from that and to turn to the one true God that we can know through the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, and to turn our hearts and lives to him, to leave our people and to go to him, to leave our gods and go to the one true God. The call and the answer of Ruth, the commitment of Ruth, listen, is the same commitment that Jesus Christ calls for from us. And it's the same invitation to return that Jesus offers. You know, the entire Bible, the entire story of the gospel is one of of going and returning. The entire human race is going away from God. And it's been going away from God ever since Genesis chapter 3, from the very beginning. It's departed, it's run, it's fled, it's gone away from him. And the story of the Bible is the human race going away from God, and yet God's great plan of salvation to get them and bring them back. And at the center of that plan to get us back is Jesus Christ, the good news to call us back, saying that something else out of Bethlehem has come. So come home. Come back. And it's an invitation for all of us It excludes none. Whoever you are, however far from him you are, no matter what you've done or where you've gone, he is calling you back ultimately. It's a greater gospel than even Naomi knew when she heard that there's food in Bethlehem and God's visited his people. It's so much better because it's an invitation to all of us, but the invitation is yet still the same, come home. Come home to the God who made you. Come home to the God who loves you. Come home to the God that's got a plan, that's got forgiveness, who's taking care of everything that needs to be done to get you back. In his son, Jesus Christ, he's paid the penalty. He's made it right. He's granted peace if you'll come home. There is eternal life and there's joy and there's peace and there's abundant life and there's hope the one who loves you, who can fill your emptiness and meet your deepest need. He says, come back. Yes, you may be empty, but come back. Yes, you may be bitter like Naomi, but listen, come back. It may have been 10 years like them. It may be one year. It may be one day, but it's all too long. Come home because he is our true home. He is our only place of wholeness. It's with him come home. And for some of you this morning, that is the invitation that God is placing upon your come home. Come to Jesus Christ. Don't wait. Do it today. You notice something else in this. 
The, the last verse in this section, in verse 18, after she says all these things, it says this, And Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more. Naomi lets her go. Nothing changes in Naomi in that moment. She, she is alone still. She is bitter. She has lost everything. She has gone on a 10-year journey to nowhere and it's gotten her nothing. In fact, it's taken what she had away. And she returns empty and bitter. But as the story goes, what we, what we see that she doesn't see is that though she feels she's returning empty and bitter without anything, She has with her God's provision for her future. And she doesn't even know it. She's probably thinking, Ruth, you're crazy. It's really sweet what you said. But if that's the kind of life you want to live, if you want to go down with me, if you want to be lonely, if you want to be a widow for the rest of your life, that's fine. You can come with me, whatever. Not realizing that in that young woman was all she needed for God's provision for her life. God provides all our needs even when we don't see it, feel it, or know it, he has already provided it. You, you may be in the midst of grief. You may be in the midst of frustration. You may be living in the midst of sin. You, you may be in the hardest road that you've ever been. But listen, you need to understand that God has provided what you need through that moment and from that moment. He has provided your needs. Ruth does not, Naomi does not return empty. In fact, she returns, whether she realizes it or not, more full than when she left. This, this first chapter is it's full of need. It's full of suffering. It's full of wrong steps taken, disastrous consequences. It's bad. It's ugly. It's hard. It's 10 years of failure and loss. And that may be the season of life that you're in. <laughs> that may be your life. Yet God's, listen, listen, listen. God's saving purpose and his provision ordinarily begin in his hidden, sometimes dark providences. Frequently, 
God places his hand on the sufferings and trials of an individual. In fact, Naomi saw it that way. The hand of God has come against me. She recognizes that what she's faced has been the suffering is the hand of God. What I'm, what I've, the loss has been the hand of God. God's allowed this calamity. God's allowed me to go through what I'm going through. And listen, I, I believe this. Listen, the difficulty and the hardship that we go through, it is not accident. It is not just a mistake and consequences that we face. It is not just someone else's fault. Listen, I think our God is good enough and strong enough and wise enough that we can believe and say this, that God has allowed it. You say, what? That's what Naomi says. The hand of God is against me. Don't forget whose hand it is. The hand of a, of a sovereign, good, mighty, just, perfect, righteous God. And that hand against us is better than any other hand for us. Because so often what that hand does as it presses against us is that it grips us with his grace to show us that he is sufficient for all our needs so that we feel the safety and security and comfort that only he can give and so that by that hand he can by his grace put us right where he wants us to be so trust it Come home. Come home. Come to Jesus. Wherever you are, come back.